It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I hope um, that you all got a chance to listen a couple of episodes back to our episode on the mother and baby home controversy and hashtag unseal the archive. We had Maeve O'Rourke on who, as you know, is a human rights lawyer and Also, we had Mary Harney, who's a mother and baby home survivor. And it was a very good conversation, which if you're wondering about the issues involved, it might be worth listening back to if you haven't listened to it already. And I know it's a really complex issue, but ultimately the way I look at it is if the survivors and people like Maeve O'Rourke and the Data Commissioner of Ireland are pointing out issues with the bill, then I'm certainly going to listen to them. And the good thing that's come out of these last week or so is that there is a real movement happening around the issue. The government are under scrutiny like never before, I think. And so hopefully as this moves on and the Mother and Baby Commission report comes out, what needs to happen will happen. And of course, what needs to happen is what should have been happening all along, but hasn't been, is that the survivors should have been able to access all the information they need to piece together their story of their lives and of what happened to them. I heard Leo Varadkar on the radio yesterday saying people have got the wrong message about this and that there was no secrecy or ceiling to be worried about. Well, let's see what happens. And when people start requesting their information and the information about the system where the state and church colluded to separate mothers from their babies and in some cases traffic them to America, these enforced separations of children from their mothers, um, children being sold without going through the courts or any sort of judicial system. Let's see then how transparent everything really is. But at the very least, all eyes are on the government and on the commission. And that is a very good thing. Now, we're very excited that this Saturday we have our big night in, but it's on Halloween. So it's really our big fright in. See what I did there? And uh, we still have tickets available for what is going to be a brilliant hour with Catelyn Moran, author of More Than a Woman. And obviously before that, How to Be a Woman, two brilliant books. And she is a really entertaining woman. And if you want to be there, just go to irishtimes.com forward slash big night in for tickets and all the details. And if you are going, make sure you dress up because we've got a hamper of chocolate, a huge hamper of chocolate, which is going to be given to the best dressed on the night. That could be you. So do dress up and get involved. And I should say that over on our Instagram page at IT Women's Podcast, you can be in with a chance to win a ticket to the Big Fright Inn. So go over there and have a look. Our last big night in 
was with Samantha Barry, the editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine, and she came to us from New York. It was a great conversation with a woman who has such a high-profile role in American media, but still has her lovely Cork accent. So we wanted to bring you a few clips from that interview. Sam spoke to us first about her feelings about the upcoming US election. There's two things I'm doing. I'm kind of lowering my expectations because I don't want to be upset, I suppose. I'm kind of going in with a pessimistic attitude. And I also don't think we will have a result on November 3rd. And I think everybody needs to prepare for, for that, that in the year that's in it, in the fact that so many people are doing mail-in ballots, in the fact that in some states you can't count those mail-in ballots until the, the election day, that we may not, ha- unless it's a landslide, we won't have a result on November 3rd. And I think that uncertainty also makes me a little nervous, to be fair. I want to see female VP in the White House. I want to see uh, progressive, for women, progressive policies coming into place. And as an immigrant, I want to be able to freely move around my country in and out of my country uh, that I live in. So there's many reasons why uh, I am definitely hoping it goes one way. She also spoke about the death of her aunt during the pandemic. That for me was, I think, really difficult because I, if it was in any other time, I would have been there to comfort my dad, right? And I would have got on a plane and I would have taken two or three days off work. But I'm not alone. Like, I've had a very good friend lose their mother in the last two weeks. And, you know, even the people that are at home, they haven't been able to hug or, like, grieve together in physicality. And I think it has been a very hard time for people to grieve um, because it often is a communal Uh, you know, people are cooking, people are over in the house and, you know, they're around each other and that was all taken away from us. So anybody, I I really do feel for anybody that's lost anybody this year because I think it's a really, it feels like a suspended year a little bit and a lost year and to be able to not properly grieve somebody in 2020, I think was probably one of the hardest things for people. And Samantha Barry also once interviewed Donald Trump in a toilet and she spoke a bit about that. I met him for honestly like four minutes. He's very tall. Uh, he has a presence. I will say that. Um, I wasn't predisposed to be his biggest fan, but he has a presence and he was he was courteous and he was really good on camera. Like out of the um, all the Republicans that we had dragged into the toilet, he knows how to deliver a line and a soundbite and he does it really well. So I have to give him that credit. Um, and he's really tall, like he's a big man, like he's very tall. And I remember sending the photo back to my mom and it's there's this photo on Instagram and it's like my, me and Donald Trump in this toilet and a black screen behind us. My mom was like, are you with Madame Tussauds? And I was like, no, mom, I'm at the Republican debate. This is my job. <laughs> she was like, that looks like a statue. And finally, our final clip from the big night in with editor-in-chief of Glamour, Samantha Barry. She told us what it's like to go to the Met Gala. I mean, the Met Gala is an interesting one, though. Like, I remember walking in the first Met Gala and I got onto the right carpet and you get times. Like, you have to, you have a certain time, you have to get onto the right carpet. And I'm on and Celine Dion comes on at the same time. Can I, I have never felt less wanted on a red carpet. Celine Dion comes after me and I'm like, I'm just looking at the Getty photographers. I was like, someone just take a picture so I can send to my mom. Like just, just one and I'll get off for Celine. Yeah, I scurried off the red carpet pretty quickly, but you go in and you walk through the Met and um, I turned around at one stage and um, Jared Leto's outfit at the time was 
he was just in the red and black outfit and he had, did you see this one? He had like yeah. a fake head that he carried around for the night. And I turned around, there he is, Jared Leto with his fake head. And all I could think of like was the 16 year old, my so-called life, Jordan Catalano lover. And I was like, <laughs> it's two Jared Leto's for the price of one. Um, so yeah, I mean, you do get those moments where you're like, oh God, this is very exciting. Now, don't forget, it's our big fright in on Saturday, Halloween night. Tickets from irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. And don't worry, you'll be sent a link to any events you missed so you can watch them back. Now to today's episode. Sinead Burke is an extraordinary Irish woman who is an academic, an activist, a broadcaster and now an author because she's just published her first book, Break the Mould, which she says is a book for children, but which has lessons for all of us. As many of you will know, Sinead has the most common form of dwarfism. It's called achondroplasia, which translates literally as without cartilage formation. It occurs in approximately 1 in 20,000 births. 80% of little people are born to two average height parents. So she's a little person who has made huge strides in reducing stigma, not just around people with her disability, but around disability in general. And she's talked so much about what the world can do in terms of accommodating people with different needs and different challenges in their lives. You'll know her for her TED talk, Why Design Should Include Everyone. And she also appeared on the cover of The Business of Fashion in May 2018 with Kim Kardashian. And this week, Sinead found out that her book, Break the Mold, is number one bestseller in Ireland and that it's shortlisted for Irish Children's Book of the Year at the On Post Book Awards. She has had so many accolades and achievements. I just want to list a couple. She got the word for little person, Dinah Bjog, added to the Irish Dictionary. Um, standing at just three foot five inches, Sinead was the first little person to attend the Met Gala. And if that wasn't enough, she was personally chosen by Meghan Markle to appear on the cover of the September issue of British Vogue. Sinead spoke to Cathy Sheridan about all of this and about her new book, Break the Mould. Sinead, you appear to live an incredibly glamorous life. You're a teacher, activist, fashion plate. And your book is a number one bestseller in Ireland and has just been shortlisted for the Irish Children's Book of the Year, Senior in the On Post Book Awards. And you're only 30. I am amused and relieved and find it somewhat wonderful and ridiculous that my life is described as glamorous because if you could see me now sitting in a shed surrounded by soy sauce, beans, glamour is not the word that springs to mind. But I am very lucky, Cathy, some of the things that you mentioned there I have been able to do in my 30 years. I'm fortunate that I have parents who always told me I could do anything that I wanted. And unfortunately, I took that piece of advice with enormous exuberance and have been able to take a couple of things off my list of ambitions so far. Well, Sinead, I am intrigued to hear of you sitting in a shed because you're one of the very rare women I've ever interviewed where I felt it would be okay to ask what you're wearing, which would normally be terribly offensive. So you're not dressed up in a Gucci gown or, or um, Ferragamo or something, obviously. No, the wonderful way in which I use clothes is often as armour or as a vehicle to communicate who I am to the world in very specific moments. In a private capacity, my wardrobe is much different. Today, I come to you wearing a pair of slippers with a faux fur trim. I'm wearing a black full-length skirt, which hides the slippers, thankfully. And I'm wearing a grey cashmere jumper because... 
whenever I am nervous about doing something like this, I like to feel warmer than I actually am because my hands go cold. And if you ask me a question that I am uncomfortable with, I'll probably try to put the roll neck over my entire face and envelop myself and hide within it. So that's what I'm wearing today. Well, I'm so sorry the podcast isn't visual on this occasion. One of the things that fascinates me, Sinead, about the path your life has taken is that you know, from the book, for example, you know, I've grown up basically hearing people around me saying fashion is for the frivolous. And in your book, you say we all spend time, too much time comparing ourselves to others. And as you know, fashion has often been portrayed as a hell's mouth for its anorexic, stick thin models and general culture of perfection. And yet this is the world that you've chosen to crash land into. It was very deliberate. I think I understood the power of clothes and its connection to the system of fashion as a way in which to narrate conversations around agency and identity. I thought that if we were in a new era beginning to discuss body diversity or a broader definition of beauty, though I disagree that it's something we should each be chasing, that fashion was an industry that deserved being tackled. And for me, one of the reasons why I position myself within fashion as a starting point, is because fashion is an industry that influences all others, be it politics, be it sport, be it technology. Fashion has such an influential role in the world as a whole, primarily because we wear clothes. And I think, yes, it can be considered facetious. I think there are a lot of feminised and queer voices within the fashion system, which perhaps provides an answer as to why it's often considered facetious. But I don't work in this industry blinkered to the ethical challenges which exist, particularly around the notions of beauty ideal, particularly around the notions of the size of models that might come down the runway or the sustainable and ethical issues in terms of where clothes are made and how they are made and the impact to people and planet. But as we begin to come up with solutions for this system, because it is so influential, let's pair ethics, sustainability and accessibility in a Venn diagram and create solutions that offer value for all because the more voices and the more diverse voices that are reflective of society at large that we can have in boardrooms, in design teams, in universities studying this industry, the more that change can happen now and at all. Sinead, it's very interesting that you're able to pair that view with with the fact that you wear Prada and Gucci and Ferragamo, all custom made. But You are not a normal wearer of clothes. You've had to work really hard to have these custom made to fit you. So for people who've been living in a cave for the past few years, can you describe why this is so groundbreaking? It's groundbreaking, but also it isn't, if I could be really transparent. I am very fortunate and it is wonderful that my wardrobe has ameliorated in recent years in terms of having access to luxury brands. It's not groundbreaking when it's only accommodating for one. And I am very cognizant and aware of that fact. The work that I'm trying to do now is trying to evolve that process. In some ways, it's groundbreaking because the fashion industry hasn't considered a body like mine before. Despite the runway of a fashion show being a physical ramp, we rarely see people with disabilities on a stage that actually is accessible. But in proving that Prada, Gucci and various other brands can make clothes for me, It proves that it is possible, it begins to make the business and the market case that there are solutions through design and innovation that we can provide for this market. 
I have a company called Tilting the Lens, which is a consultancy company looking at accessibility through innovation and design. The work that I'm doing in fashion right now is quieter. It is not on Instagram. It is in boardrooms. It is in shaping policies, developing strategic plans and in creating projects where we can evolve the thinking around accessibility and adaptation and design in not something that just benefits me and actually in not something that just benefits disabled people, but that benefits society as a whole. So, for example, what I need as a little person in terms of clothing options is alterations which is a medical word. It's something that we use to describe those who have needs. Within a fashion vernacular, we're more familiar with the term customization. But Cathy, you might actually just prefer three-quarter length sleeves or short sleeves. Those are the same requirements that I have. I definitely want sleeves, Sinead. I mean, that's one of my big bugbears. (laughs) But you might want sleeves. And actually, that process that we can embed into design is going to have value for everybody. So the work that I'm doing now is trying to create these strategies, create these projects and move design thinking forward in terms of fabric, fixture and customization, whilst also developing employment projects within these fashion brands to ensure that disabled people are not just considered as customers, but as colleagues in retail and in corporate offices. But I am deliberately positioning myself within the space of luxury fashion. And that is challenging in and of itself because, yes, you're working in this industry, but at that echelon, It is out of the price point of so many. It is something I'm aware of. But understanding how the fashion system works, influence goes from top down. So being able to infiltrate the brands at the most senior level of the system provides opportunity for then learnings to come about from the high street, from design students and forward. But if we began at the high street and tried to make adaptive fashion exist within that marketplace, luxury would never adopt it. So it's trying to create change, both from an educational perspective in design schools, but also at the most senior parts of the system so that change can be accelerated and happen much faster. Sinead, you're three foot five or in in new money, as they call it, you're 105 centimetres tall. And this is, creates problems in our average height world. The average height would be what, about five foot five? That's not information I have. Yes, yeah, I imagine I, so. I actually, I've never <laughs> Everybody's thought about tall it. beyond four foot. Yeah, be, right. Okay. Um, so, so you have this condition called achondroplasia. Is that right? Yes, it is. So I have achondroplasia. I inherited it from my father. My father is a little person too. Achondroplasia is the most common form of dwarfism. But interestingly, most little people, which is the terminology that I use, not everyone uses, but I use, most little people are born to two average height parents. So 80% of little people have two average height parents. But me, I inherited my condition from my dad. And in some ways, Sinead, to have your father with that same condition possibly gave you a beacon in life. Maybe it allowed you to navigate life and allowed him to help you navigate it more efficiently. Would I be right in saying that? Absolutely. For as long as I can remember, I feel very fortunate that I have had a role model in my father that I could see that he survived and thrived. So in many ways, that 
was always inevitable for me. But I do think that my interest in fashion came about because my dad had no interest in fashion. And when I went to him and asked questions about what will I wear, whether it was for my first Holy Communion or whether it was for at the weekend, my dad's advice and solution was always tracksuit bottoms and a pair of runners. And I thought there has to be more <laughs> to a wardrobe than this. And I think his lack of interest possibly because his lack of exposure and his lack of access to clothes when he was growing up probably fueled my desire in fashion even further. And Sinead, was it upsetting back then? Because it's upsetting for anybody who's not in an average body to go shopping. Do you remember it being upsetting when you were small? I remember it being frustrating rather than upsetting. And I think it really became obvious to me when I went shopping with my sisters. As the eldest of five children and as the eldest of four girls, I thought it was my role in some ways to bring them through a shopping experience. And I remember going to a store with my sister and realising really quickly how much she could do independently, never mind how much she could purchase, but the idea that she could go to a rail and pick something off it without having to ask for help or to the cash register or to the changing rooms. And then knowing that she could buy something, wear it and actually leave the shop wearing the item. And it was such a distance from my experience because at no point within the opportunity of shopping did I have any agency or independence? And then if I did purchase something, it would have to go off and be altered. And it would be some time before I could even wear it, if it was available in my size, if it could be altered. And I think if children and young people understand anything, it is this notion of fairness. And I just felt it was incredibly unfair that I was older, I had more insights and love for this industry and understood what it could do for me as a disabled woman in terms of giving me consent over my own aesthetic. And yet, it wasn't something I could access. And Sinead, just moving back a bit, I suppose, from that point, you went to school It sounds to me like you were very much welcomed into that school. Your parents had worked hand in glove with the school school teachers. So the hook for your coat was there and it was specially lowered. Your desk and chair were lowered. So it it, it probably felt friendly and welcoming. Um, Is that a fair thing to say? Yes, absolutely. I loved school. From my very first day of school, I understood, even though I didn't have this language at the time, but I understood that education could be a caveat for creating change. My teachers, my principal, and then in turn, the girls that I went to school with were so open and so outwardly curious about who I was that it created this immediate acceptance. But that was because, exactly as you said, of the work that my parents did, they were an advocate for me before I could advocate for myself with things like having a low coat hook, with the bathroom, and it made such a difference. You also made a speech, Sinead, as a four-year-old when you arrived into the school that day and I think quite startled people. You got (laughs) up and you said what? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, I started school a couple of days later than everybody else. I started school on the day of my fourth birthday. My birthday is in the middle of September. And I started school on that day because there was some initial concerns or worries that 
I might have to repeat a year going forward because of my disability, that there could be an opportunity where my physical disability might have a cognitive impact too. So there was this notion that if I started at four, if I needed additional time going through the years, that it would be on my side. So I started on the day of my fourth birthday, knowing that everybody else had probably been together for about two weeks and had just taken it upon myself to write a speech because that was something that I did at four and is something that I do at 30. And when the teacher introduced me and said, why don't you say hello? What she was expecting me to do was to wave shyly to the class, but never to miss an opportunity. I said, hi, my name is Sinead. I'm four years old. I have a chondroplasia. A-C-H-O-N-D-R-O-P-L-A-S-I-A. I could talk before I could walk. But much like my relationship with fashion, my relationship with language is very similar. My parents continuously provided me with the words and sentences and phrases that I needed to facilitate people's curiosity, but to also give me some independence and agency. They knew that when I started school, children would ask, why are you so small? And they would give me phrases such as, I'm just like my dad. He's little like me too. Or if they ask, why are you so small? I would say, why are you so big? And they would say, I was born like this. And I would say, so was I. And my parents understood that by presenting me with that language, it would remove not even just the curiosity, but it would provide opportunities for us to humanize awkward conversations, even at four. And those are lessons that I've really just tried to develop ever since then. There's a lovely chapter in the book actually called Awkward, which we'll get around to in a minute. I think what strikes me is you're such a positive person, really. I mean, in the book, you describe yourself as messy. You leave damp towels and clothes all over the place and you also overthink things. So it's not like everything that happened to you ran off you. There must have been very upsetting times, Sinead, when you found yourself being pointed at and, and singled out in a way that must have been very uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. I think I have two significant challenges in the world due to me having dwarfism and being a little person and being disabled. And they are primarily the built environment and design because there was so much that was not considered from a holistic or accessible lens when designing the world and public spaces. But that can probably be changed easier than the second challenge, which is bias and societal assumptions. And I wish I could say it's only something that I experienced when I was younger, but it continues to this day and probably proliferates even further now. So it's a regular occurrence that I will be walking down the street and a stranger will point, stare, laugh, call me names with the increased use of social media. It's a regular occurrence also that photographs will be taken of me without my consent or videos, never knowing where they will end up, always used to enhance the virality of the content of the other person and always used to make me feel like an other or an object rather than a person. And that's really hard. I don't know where it comes from, and if I had to provide a solution to try to change it, I'm not sure just yet. Do we need a curriculum of inclusion and empathy within schools to give people an understanding both of the power of their actions, but also the diversity that exists in the world? But in some ways, I think I'm lucky that I have this really broad understanding that I kind of feel like I'm lucky that my disability or my difference is so visible and actually we need to get to a place where as a society we can create a world where everybody can be safe to be themselves be it visible or invisible in terms of their difference but it's tough at 30 I still ring my mom when it happens to me if it's walking to the shop and young people are being 
intimidating or mean or cruel in a way to be popular. But it happens more frequently than than I'm comfortable with. Sinead, you, 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 an incident happened to you where you were walking down a street where two teenage boys were coming towards you. Can you describe that particular incident? Yeah, sure. It was a afternoon, probably around 12 o'clock in the day, and not far from O'Connell Street, I was walking to meet a friend for lunch. We were going for sushi. Two boys who were in around 16 years old walked past me. I thought nothing of it until one of them leapfrogged over me from behind, which means they jumped from the ground behind me, over my head, and landed in front of me. All the while, his friend recorded the entire incident on a phone. I was really upset. Um, They ran away straight afterwards, cackling to themselves. I rang my mother and cried on the phone to her, age 29, and just felt so afraid. Um... Primarily because I just couldn't believe that they had the confidence to even understand or think that they could go from the ground and not kick me in the head and not cause me any injury. And whilst I was disappointed and upset with the boy who had done the jump, I was also disappointed with the boy who had recorded it. Why did he not feel confident or aware or even cognizant of the fact of saying, this isn't a cool thing to do? But they didn't even see me as a person. They just saw me as an object. And I think being a teacher... I'm always solution focused or at least try to be not necessarily finding the positive in everything because there's little positivity in that moment, but trying to at least find a way in which this couldn't or shouldn't or has less opportunity to happen again. And I think if we share human stories and human experiences, that's a way to build empathy and to get people to think differently. So I spoke to a friend of mine who worked for the Northeast Inner City and asked if I could go into every school in the area and did and spoke to every secondary school and every primary school in the locality to try to give them a sense, not just of who I was, but the importance of all of our actions and the accountability that we need to take to build a kinder, fairer world. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Sinead, in some ways, what fascinates me about you is that you are offered a solution of a sort when you were 11. A very fragile age for most people where they're starting to look at what they are and who they are and how they relate to other people. You were offered surgery, a a limb lengthening surgery, and you decided against it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. For me, the surgery was offered at a time just before a growth spurt. The idea behind it would be that The surgery would take place, it would give you a boost ahead of the genetic happenings that were coming with the teenage years. So the surgery, if anybody has ever broken a bone, typically follows that process. So my leg bones would have been deliberately broken and over the course of a year stretched apart so that new bone and new marrow would grow in between the fracture. It would give me approximately three to six inches in height, which at three feet five inches tall, would make some difference. My parents took a really brave approach and said, this has to be your decision, Sinead. You need to make this for you. We cannot make it for you because if we do, you may only regret whatever it is that we decide. So this is for you to make. And at 11, I was really kind of, not even flippant about it, but I was a child. So my response to trying to come up with a solution was to write a list 
on one side, I had the pros, which were reaching light switches, not needing help in public bathrooms, not having to ask for help, just being able to do things on my own. And the cons list was that I would be changing who I was, but I didn't really care about that. As I began to think about the ability to turn light switches on, I realized that actually that didn't matter as much as the idea that I would fit in more. Maybe I would have more friends. Maybe people would be open to having conversations with me easier because I would look more like them. After taking some time to think about it, I came into my mom and dad and I said, so I've made a decision. As dramatic as that sounds, I was that dramatic at 11 and said, I'm not going to have the surgery because the only reason to have the surgery is to make me look like everyone else, to make others feel better about interacting with me, to make more friends. But if people don't like me because I'm a little person, that's not my burden to carry. That's theirs. I'm very proud to be me. I'm very happy being me. So I'm going to remain as me and not have this surgery. And I look back on that moment now and realise how radical that decision was. At 30, I think if I was presented with that opportunity, I don't know if I would be as confident as I was at 11. I really hope that I would be. But it set me up for such a strong trajectory of believing in myself and being comfortable in my own skin. So Sinead, you set out to be a teacher from the age of four, as far as I can see. You got comfortably through school, as far as I can see, from an an academic viewpoint. You studied to be a teacher and became a teacher. And what happened next? Whilst I was studying to be a teacher, one of our assignments in college was to create a blog. The idea of the blog is that we could use it in our classrooms and every day update the blog with what was happening in school. It would be effective, particularly for conversations at home, because parents often ask their child, what did you do today? And the child, after spending eight hours in the building, will say nothing. And the idea was that as a teacher, you would maybe say, "Okay, this week we're talking about space so that parents or adults who are at home could have that conversation around the dining room table. But when that assignment was given to us, the lecturer at the time said, you can write about anything that you want. Now, what he meant was within education, but that's not what he said. So I wrote about Kate Blanchett wearing Givenchy couture to the Oscars and how important couture was and the importance of using red carpet moments to talk about craft and fashion as a whole. Thankfully, he passed me in that assignment. I'm not sure he actually read the text. But this blog became this gateway to having broad conversations about fashion because I would sit and annoy every person that I knew and came in contact with at home about my interest in the industry because of what I'd learned when I had done research and reading the newspapers and articles that I had come across. And the blog began to grow. What was a safe space on the internet because people didn't know what I looked like began to create this community where I realized it wasn't just me who was excluded from fashion, but most people, an industry that is built on exclusivity, funny enough, excludes most people. And over time, the advocacy got stronger and more amplified. I was given opportunities and worked on stages like TED to talk about the importance of thinking about accessibility and design. And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, I was working in the fashion industry with a company to try to create systemic change. And there was a moment in time where it was trying to balance teaching full time and doing this advocacy work. And I thought, I'm going to try the advocacy work. But I hope still sometime in the future to go back to teaching full time. I really miss being in the classroom. I'm sure you do. But just going back briefly before we turn to the book and, and, and what lies ahead, Sinead, in terms of, of, of navigating a social life, 
you live in Navan, is that right? I do, yes, in County Meath. Um, now, I don't know where you were, you were, um, where you were going for your big nights out and that sort of thing. But you didn't for a while realise, really, what, why weekends were such fun for some people and not so much for others. You didn't get nightclubs, for example. Yeah, I remember being in college and so much a part of the college experience is about the nightlife. And I remember going to nightclubs that my friends in college frequented every weekend. But every time we went, I was so nervous. And I was nervous because of the behaviour of other people that I couldn't control. Particularly when people were inebriated and had alcohol in their system. Their sense of what is right and wrong, even though it shouldn't, becomes compromised. I had experiences in nightclubs where people would come over, they would pick me up, they would throw me into the air, they would just behave horrendously. They would stand in front of me and behave comedically in order to appear cool to their friends and it just left me feeling unsafe. It left me making excuses, not want to go with my friends on nights out. It was horrible. But I remember my first experience in the George in Dublin, which is a queer and LGBTQ club. I remember watching a drag show and as the show ended, the music playing and people beginning to climb onto the stage and to dance and I remember feeling reluctant to step into the spotlight and to dance too. I've spent so much of my life being observed and oftentimes it's without my consent or control. And yet I just thought, you know, Madonna's Vogue is playing. This is a song that you love. You know the choreography. Just go for it. And I did. And the idea that nobody bothered to look at me. Nobody looked at me. We just collectively enjoyed the experience because I was in a space where Most people in that room knew what it was like to feel othered, knew what it was like to be observed, to be critiqued, to have biases exist about who they are and what they could be. And the idea that we could just be ourselves was so freeing that I remember turning to my friends afterwards going, I get it. I understand it. I want to be here every Saturday night. And I am so grateful to the queer community for their acceptance to so many people who feel excluded that they offer an open invitation to just be yourself. That is such an extraordinary thing, really, Sinead, in terms of where life has taken you and to the book that you've written, which I just think is fantastically readable. I know it's for children, but in fact, it could be for anybody who likes reading in chunks and who loves good design. And this book is basically about designing a world where people feel safe. So it could be for anyone, couldn't it? It was written thinking about my experiences of being a teacher, thinking about the quiet children, the louder children who are often camouflaging challenges of their own and the children who just, you often don't know if they're there in the classroom or if they're not. Perhaps in their conscience, they're somewhere else. And it's thinking about this notion that we are all different. There are all things that we each struggle with. And how do we initially even find a way for children to accept who they are, to grow comfortable in their own skin, but also how do we then provide people with tools to make spaces and the world as a whole easier for people to just be themselves, to not have to be someone that you're not or to pretend to not be struggling in order to survive and thrive, to just realise that we all struggle and we need to find ways to accommodate those challenges. And Sinead, as I said earlier, one of my one of my one of your lovely chapters is called "Awkward," uh, in which you talk about people, or you 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 have advice for people 
about whom things have been said, maybe in language that's not acceptable now, was never acceptable. Tell us a little bit about how you deal with that. I start from my own experience of even thinking about how often I'm in the supermarket and a child will be sitting in a trolley and will see me and will announce to their parent and to the entire aisle, look, there's a little woman. At which point the adult absolutely panics and cannot believe that their child is mortifying them in this way in the middle of the supermarket. The parent does a couple of things. They initially shush the child. They try to bribe them with something sugary. And if that doesn't work and the child once again says even louder, look, no, there, look, there is a little woman. The adult's only reaction is to try as quickly as they can to get into the next aisle. What would solve that scenario is for the adult to say to the child, look, yes, that is a little woman. Why don't you say hello? And that's not to say that everybody who is different needs to spend their time in every supermarket every day explaining who they are. But giving the child an opportunity, should they wish to even say hello, humanises the situation. Within the book, I've tried to use that as a script to provide opportunities to talk about other things, but to also give children in particular scripts to not just remove themselves from being the subject, but to also think about how they can be an ally, which is a concept that sometimes is considered too adult to talk to children about. But there's a couple of examples in the book. One of them is that a child is in the playground and a friend of theirs, somebody they know, shouts to somebody else in the yard and says, he's gay. What does a child do in that situation? It's difficult. As an adult, I would even find that challenging to come up with the appropriate language. But I tried to in the book. The child in response says, maybe he is gay. It's okay to be gay, but it's not okay to be cruel and unkind. That's not cool. And whether it is an LGBTQ identity or a different identity that could be placed within that, the script remains the same. How can we provide people with language? Because whilst language is ever-changing and political and challenging, if we don't at least have the words to begin the conversation, the conversation doesn't happen at all. This is all so important. And I also love your sections, Sinead, about the unsung heroes, such as the fashion model, who's also a mental health advocate, the man who, when he was a boy of 14, had the idea of donating thousands of old glasses to people who needed them. Louis Braille, who was blind himself and invented Braille. And you also have a word for Jacinda Ardern, which I think is fantastic. So it's actually a very broad reaching book. Um, you're setting out to change the world, Sinead, and the world is ill designed as it is. And somebody made a great point, or maybe it may have probably was you, which is that the world is inhabited by many, many, many millions of children. So why is it so poorly designed, for one thing? Why isn't it designed more for children? Have you worked that out? I think we often are most comfortable with the things that are familiar to us. And the things that are familiar to us are often like us. And I think what we're seeing, not just in design, but in the world over, is that historically those who have been in positions of power or positions of decision-making, be it about design, have been designing the world in their own likeness. So if those individuals didn't have children or didn't consider their own children when designing the world, that gives us some solutions. But I think there is an opportunity to change it. It's not just about asking for one sink in every public bathroom to be lower so that a child can reach it and maybe I can reach it, like the way it is in Ikea or Dublin Zoo, but to be going back even further. 
What do our students who are studying architecture and design study? What are they thinking about? What are the lectures and the education that they are exposed to? Do they meet disabled people within their curriculum to learn about accessibility and thinking through building codes or in thinking through historic and protected buildings? But do we go back even further? Do we tell disabled children that they could be designers and design our world? Probably not. We still have set roles for some people. So I think we need to stop designing in our own likeness. We need to build advisory boards or bring in voices that aren't part of the architecture within architecture and help us change it. Um, Sinead, getting a book into the bestsellers called Break the Mold and How to Take Your Place in the World is a huge, huge start, apart from all the other amazing work you do. Just tell me finally, how, is, how are you managing life in lockdown? I have been home since March prior to the pandemic. I would have travelled quite a bit. And it has been challenging familial-wise, I think, for so many people, including our family. But what I have really reveled in is routine. I go for a walk every day that's five kilometres and talk to a friend on that walk every single day, the same friend. We know each other far too well after over 200 days of walking. I am trying to look after myself and my mind and those of the people I loved most. I think we're all just trying to keep safe and try to figure out if we can really work from home, if home is a place where families and children and dogs and post people come to the door at all times. But I'm doing okay. Uh, And I'm very lucky that I'm doing okay. I've tried to develop strategies to keep mind, body, heart all centred. And it's, yeah, pretty level at the moment. Is there a silver lining to, the, to, to this pandemic at all, Sinead? You're such a positive person. I'm hoping you, you, you can think of one. I think if we think about disabled people and access, we could have opportunities within the pandemic, if there are some. Taking away our use of language like vulnerable and underlying conditions to talk about people and to try to you know, rebuild the economy without them is one thing. The opportunities that exist is that for such a long time, disabled people have been asking companies about working from home. Up until now, it was deemed impossible. So until the majority require something, it's always impossible. We're finding now that for many, not for all, but for many, working from home is providing greater flexibility for who they are as people. What I also think is hopeful is that as we begin to design a world that requires social distancing, that requires us not to touch things for sanitary reasons, that we also think about accessibility. Because if we're going to widen our paths for social distancing, that's great perhaps for wheelchair users or for those who have a visual impairment or those who have a support dog. But let's ensure that we're thinking about that in the midst of the conversations because we may never get an opportunity like this again where resources will be supplied to redesign our world. So let's do it through a lens of sustainability, ethics and access, because we really need to. Well, Sinead Burke, that is pretty positive. Thank you so much for that. I can't wait to see what happens next. Um, I hope to see you all dressed up in your finery someday soon, face to face. And in the meantime, thank you so much for all you do and for your positivity and for the contribution. Cathy, thank you. I'm such an admirer of you and your daughters. I think you are an extraordinary family and Ireland is very lucky to have you facilitating our stories and narrating really important topics. Sinead, thank you for that. Now you're making me blush and cry. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, but thank you. It was so lovely to talk. 
Listen, thanks a million. Thank you. Thanks very much to Sinead Burke there and to Cathy Sheridan. What a woman Sinead is. And the book is called Break the Mould. I have to say my two daughters are loving it at the moment. Brilliant stocking filler or gift for boys or girls. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.